Section 27. Part 2 of Chapter 2 of Atlantis, the Antediluvian World by Ignatius Loyola Donnelly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Atlantis, the Antediluvian World by Ignatius Loyola Donnelly. Part 4. The Mythologies of the Old World, a Recollection of Atlantis. Chapter 2, Part 2. The Empire of Atlantis. The empire of the Titans was clearly the empire of Atlantis. The most judicious among our mythologists, says Dr. Rees, New British Cyclopedia, Article Titans, such as Gerard Vosius, Marsham, Bocart, and Father Thomason, are of opinion that the partition of the world among the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, was the original of the tradition of the same partition among Jupiter, Neptune, and Pluto, upon the breaking up of the great empire of the Titans. The learned Pezron contends that the division which was made of this vast empire came, in after times, to be taken for the partition of the whole world, that Asia remaining in the hands of Jupiter Zeus, the most potent of the three brothers, made him looked upon as the god of Olympus, that the sea and islands which fell to Neptune occasioned their giving him the title of god of the sea, and that Spain, the extremity of the then known world, thought to be a very low country in respect of Asia, and famous for its excellent mines of gold and silver failing to Pluto, occasioned him to be taken for the god of the infernal regions. We should suppose that Pluto possibly ruled over the transatlantic possessions of Atlantis and America, over those portions of the opposite continent, which Plato tells us were dominated by Atlas and his posterity, and which, being far beyond or below sunset, were the underworld of the ancients, while Atlantis, the Canaries, etc., constituted the island division with western Africa and Spain. Murray tells us, Mythology, page 58, that Pluto's share of the kingdom was supposed to lie in the remote west. The underworld of the dead was simply the world below the western horizon. The home of the dead has to do with that far west region where the sun dies at night. Anthropology, page 350. On the coast of Brittany, where Cape Raz stands out westward into the ocean, there is the Bay of Souls, the launching place where the departed spirits sail off across the sea. Ibid. In the like manner, Odysseus found the land of the dead in the ocean beyond the pillars of Hercules. There, indeed, was the land of the mighty dead, the grave of the drowned Atlanteans. However this be, continues Father Pezron, the empire of the Titans, according to the ancients, was very extensive. They possessed Phrygia, Thrace, a part of Greece, the island of Crete, and several other provinces to the inmost recesses of Spain. To these, Sanchoniathon seems to join Syria, and Diodorus adds a part of Africa, and the kingdoms of Mauritania. The kingdoms of Mauritania embraced all that northwestern region of Africa nearest to Atlantis, in which are the Atlas Mountains, and in which, in the days of Herodotus, dwelt the Atlantes. Neptune or Poseidon says in answer to a message from Jupiter, No vassal god, nor of his train am I. Three brothers, deities, from Saturn came, and ancient Rhea, Earth's immortal dame. Assigned by lot our triple rule we know, Infernal Pluto sways the shades below. Over the wide clouds and over the starry plain, Ethereal Jove extends his high domain. My court beneath the hoary waves I keep, And hush the roaring of the sacred deep. Iliad, Book 18. Homer alludes to Poseidon, As the god whose liquid arms are hurled around the globe, Whose earthquakes rock the world. Mythology tells us that when the Titans were defeated by Saturn, They retreated into the interior of Spain, Jupiter followed them up and beat them for the last time near Tartessus, 
and thus terminated a ten years' war. Here we have a real battle on an actual battlefield. If we needed any further proof that the empire of the Titans was the empire of Atlantis, we would find it in the names of the Titans. Among these were Oceanus, Saturn or Kronos, and Atlas. They were all the sons of Uranus. Oceanus was at the base of the Greek mythology. Plato says, Dialogues, Timaeus, Volume 2, page 533, Oceanus and Tethys were the children of earth and heaven, and from these sprung Horses and Kronos and Rhea, and many more with them, and from Kronos and Rhea sprung Zeus and Hera, and all those whom we know as the brethren, and others who were their children. In other words, all their gods came out of the ocean. They were rulers over some ocean realm. Kronos was the son of Oceanus, and Kronos was an Atlantean god, and from him the Atlantic Ocean was called by the ancients the Cronian Sea. The elder Minos was called the son of the ocean. He first gave civilization to the Cretans. He engraved his laws on brass, precisely as Plato tells us the laws of Atlantis were engraved on pillars of brass. The wanderings of Ulysses, as detailed in the Odyssey of Homer, are strangely connected with the Atlantic Ocean. The islands of the Phoenicians were apparently in mid-ocean. We dwell apart afar, within the unmeasured deep amid its waves. The most remote of men, no other race, hath commerce with us. Odyssey, Book Six. The description of the Phaeacian walls, harbors, cities, palaces, ships, etc., seem like a recollection of Atlantis. The island of Calypso appears also to have been in the Atlantic Ocean, twenty days' sail from the Phaeacian Isles. And when Ulysses goes to the land of Pluto, the underworld, the home of the dead, he reached the far confines of Oceanus, beyond the pillars of Hercules. It would be curious to inquire how far the poems of Homer are Atlantean in their relations and inspiration. Ulysses' wanderings were a prolonged struggle with Poseidon, the founder and god of Atlantis. The Hecatoncheres, or Cetamani, beings each with a hundred hands, were three in number, Kotos, Gyges, or Gyes, and Briarius, and represented the frightful crashing of waves in its resemblance to the convulsions of earthquakes. Murray's Mythology, page 26. Are not these hundred arms the oars of the galleys, and the frightful crashing of the waves their movements in the water? The Cyclopes also were three in number, Brontes with his thunder, Steropes with his lightning, and Arges with his stream of light. They were represented as having only one eye, which was placed at the juncture between the nose and brow. It was, however, a large flashing eye, as became beings who were personifications of the storm cloud, with its flashes of destructive lightning and peals of thunder. We shall show hereafter that the invention of gunpowder dates back to the days of the Phoenicians, and may have been derived by them from Atlantis. It is not impossible that in this picture of the Cyclopes we see a tradition of sea-going ships, with a light burning at the prow, and arms with some explosive preparation, which, with a roar like thunder, and a flash like lightning, destroyed those against whom it was employed. It at least requires less strain upon our credulity to suppose these monsters were a barbarian's memory of great ships than to believe that human beings ever existed with a hundred arms and with one eye in the middle of their forehead and giving out thunder and lightning the natives of the west india islands regarded the ships of columbus as living creatures and that their sails were wings Berosus tells us speaking of the ancient days of chaldea in the first year there appeared from that part of the erythranian sea which borders babylonia an animal endowed with reason, by name Oannes, whose whole body, according to the account of Apollodorus, was that of a fish, that under the fish's head he had another head, 
with feet also below, similar to those of a man, subjoined to the fish's tail. His voice, too, in language, was articulate and human, and a representation of him is preserved even unto this day. This being was accustomed to pass the day among men, but took no food at that season, and he gave them an insight into letters and arts of all kinds. He taught them to construct cities, to found temples, to compile laws, and explain to them the principles of geometrical knowledge. He made them distinguish the seeds of the earth, and showed them how to collect the fruits. In short, he instructed them in everything which could tend to soften manners and humanize their laws. From that time nothing material has been added by way of improvement to his instructions. And when the sun set, this being, Oanes, retired again into the sea, and passed the night in the deep, for he was amphibious. After this there appeared other animals like Oanes. This is clearly the tradition preserved by a barbarous people of the great ships of a civilized nation, who colonized their coast and introduced the arts and sciences among them. And here we see the same tendency to represent the ship as a living thing, which converted the war vessels of the Atlanteans, the Cyclopes, into men with one blazing eye in the middle of the forehead. He married his sister Rhea, who bore him Pluto, Poseidon, Zeus, Hestia, Demeter, and Hera. He anticipated that his sons would dethrone him as he had dethroned his father Uranus, and he swallowed his first five children, and would have swallowed the sixth child Zeus, but that his wife Rhea deceived him with a stone image of the child, and Zeus was conveyed to the island of Crete, and there concealed in a cave and raised to manhood. Subsequently, Cronos yielded back to the light the children he had swallowed. This myth probably means that Cronos had his children raised in some secret place, where they could not be used by his enemies as the instruments of a rebellion against his throne. And the stone image of Zeus, palmed off upon him by Rhea, was probably some other child substituted for his own. His precautions seemed to have been wise, for as soon as the children returned to the light, they commenced a rebellion, and drove the old gentleman from his throne. A rebellion of the Titans followed. The struggle was a tremendous one, and seems to have been decided at last by the use of gunpowder, as I shall show farther on. We have seen Kronos identified with the Atlantic, called by the Romans the Cronian Sea. He was known to the Romans under the name of Saturn, and ruled over a great Saturnian continent in the western ocean. Saturn, or Kronos, came to Italy. He presented himself to the king, Janus, and proceeded to instruct the subjects of the latter in agriculture, gardening, and many other arts then quite unknown to them. As, for example, how to tend and cultivate the vine. By such means he at length raised the people from a rude and comparatively barbarous condition to one of order and peaceful occupations, in consequence of which he was everywhere held in high esteem, and in course of time was selected by Janus to share with him the government of the country which thereupon assumed the name of Saturnia, a land of seed and fruit. The period of Saturn's government was sung in later days by poets as a happy time, when sorrows were unknown, when innocence, freedom, and gladness reigned throughout the land in such a degree as to deserve the title of the Golden Age. Murray's Mythology, page 32. All this accords with Plato's story. He tells us that the rule of the Atlanteans extended to Italy, and that they were a civilized, agricultural, and commercial people. The civilization of Rome was therefore an outgrowth directly from the civilization of Atlantis. The Roman Saturnalia was a remembrance of the Atlantean colonization. It was a period of joy and festivity. Master and slave met as equals, 
the distinctions of poverty and wealth were forgotten no punishments for crime were inflicted servants and slaves went about dressed in the clothes of their masters and children received presents from their parents or relatives it was a time of jollity and mirth a recollection of the golden age we find a reminiscence of it in the roman carnival the third and last on the throne of the highest god was zeus we shall see him a little farther on by the aid of some mysterious engine overthrowing the rebels the titans who rose against his power amid the flash of lightning and the roar of thunder he was called the thunderer and the mighty thunderer he was represented with thunderbolts in his hand and an eagle at his feet during the time of zeus atlantis seems to have reached its greatest height of power he was recognized as the father of the whole world he everywhere rewarded uprightness truth faithfulness and kindness he was merciful to the poor and punished the cruel to illustrate his rule on earth the following story is told philemnon and bacchus an aged couple of the poorer class were living peacefully and full of piety towards the gods in their cottage in phrygia when zeus who often visited the earth disguised to inquire into the behavior of men paid a visit and passing through phrygia on such a journey to these poor old people and was received by them very kindly as a weary traveller which he pretended to be bidding him welcome to the house they set about preparing for their guest who was accompanied by hermes as excellent a meal as they could afford and for this purpose were about to kill the only goose they had left when zeus interfered for he was touched by their kindliness and genuine piety and that all the more because he had observed among the other inhabitants of the district nothing but cruelty of disposition and a habit of reproaching and despising the gods to punish this conduct he determined to visit the country with a flood but to save from it philemon and bacchus the good aged couple and to reward them in a striking manner to this end he revealed himself to them before opening the gates of the great flood transformed their poor cottage on the hill into a splendid temple installed the aged pair as his priest and priestess and granted their prayer that they might both die together when after many years death overtook them they were changed into two trees that grew side by side in the neighborhood an oak and a linden murray's mythology page thirty eight here we have another reference to the flood and another identification with atlantis zeus was a kind of henry the eighth and took to himself a number of wives by demeter ceres he had persephone proserpine by leto apollo and artemis diana by dione aphrodite venus by Semele, Dionysus Bacchus, by Maya, Hermes, Mercury, by Alcmene, Hercules, etc., etc. We have thus the whole family of gods and goddesses traced back to Atlantis. Hera or Juno was the first and principal wife of Zeus. There were numerous conjugal rows between the royal pair, in which, say the poets, Juno was generally to blame. She was naturally jealous of the other wives of Zeus. Zeus on one occasion beat her, and through her son, Hephaestos, out of Olympus. On another occasion he hung her out of Olympus with her arms tied and two great weights attached to her feet. A very brutal and ungentlemanly trick. But the Greeks transposed this into a beautiful symbol. The two weights, they say, represent the earth and sea. An illustration of how all the phenomena of the visible sky were supposed to hang dependent on the highest god of heaven. Ibid, page 47. Juno probably regarded the transaction in an altogether different light and she therefore united with Poseidon, the king's brother, and his daughter Athena, in a rebellion to put the old fellow in a straitjacket, and would have succeeded had not Thetis brought to his aid the sea-giant, Aegeon. 
probably a warship. She seems in the main, however, to have been a good wife and was the type of all the womanly virtues. Poseidon, the first king of Atlantis, according to Plato, was, according to Greek mythology, a brother of Zeus and a son of Kronos. In the division of the kingdom he fell heir to the ocean and its islands, and to the navigable rivers. In other words, he was king of a maritime and commercial people. His symbol was the horse. He was the first to train and employ horses. That is to say, his people first domesticated the horse. This agrees with what Plato tells us of the importance attached to the horse in Atlantis, and of the baths and race-courses provided for him. He was worshipped in the island of Tenos in the character of a physician, showing that he represented an advanced civilization. He was also master of an agricultural people. The ram with the golden fleece for which the Argonauts sailed was the offspring of Poseidon. He carried in his hand a three-pronged symbol, the trident, doubtless an emblem of the three continents that were embraced in the empire of Atlantis. He founded many colonies along the shores of the Mediterranean. He helped to build the walls of Troy, the tradition thus tracing the Trojan civilization to an Atlantean source. He settled Attica and founded Athens, named after his niece Athena, daughter of Zeus, who had no mother, but had sprung from the head of Zeus, which probably signified that her mother's name was not known. She was a foundling. Athena caused the first olive tree to grow on the Acropolis of Athens, parent of all the olive trees of Greece. Poseidon seems to have had settlements at Corinth, Aegina, Nikos, and Delphi. Temples were erected to his honor in nearly all the seaport towns of Greece. He sent a sea monster to wit, a slip, to ravage part of the Trojan territory. In the Iliad, Poseidon appears as ruler of the sea, inhabiting a brilliant palace in its depths, traversing its surface in a chariot, or stirring the powerful billows until the earth shakes as they crash upon the shores. He is also associated with well-watered plains and valleys. Murray's Mythology, page 51. The palace in the depths of the sea was the palace upon Olympus in Atlantis. The traversing of the sea referred to the movements of a mercantile race. The shaking of the earth was an association with earthquakes. The well-watered plains and valleys remind us of the great plain of Atlantis described by Plato. All the traditions of the coming of civilization into Europe point to Atlantis. For instance, Kelios, who lived at Eleusius, near Athens, hospitably received Demeter, the Greek Ceres, the daughter of Poseidon, when she landed. And in return, she taught him the use of the plough, and presented his son with the seed of barley, and sent him out to teach mankind how to sow and utilize that grain. Dionysus, grandson of Poseidon, traveled through all the known world, even into the remotest parts of India, instructing the people, as he proceeded, how to tend the vine, and how to practice many other arts of peace, besides teaching them the value of just and honorable dealings. Mari's Mythology, page 119. The Greeks celebrated great festivals in his honor down to the coming of Christianity. The nymphs of Grecian mythology were a kind of middle beings between the gods and men, communicating with both, loved and respected by both, living like gods on ambrosia. In extraordinary cases they were summoned, it was believed, to the councils of the Olympian gods, but they usually remained in their particular spheres, in secluded grottoes and peaceful valleys, occupied in spinning, weaving, bathing, singing sweet songs, dancing, sporting or accompanying deities who passed through their territories, hunting with Artemis Diana, rushing about with Dionysus Bacchus, making merry with Apollo or Hermes, Mercury, 
but always in a hostile attitude towards the wanton and excited satyrs. The nymphs were plainly the female inhabitants of Atlantis dwelling on the plains, while the aristocracy lived on the higher lands, and this is confirmed by the fact that part of them were called the Atlantids, offspring of Atlantis. The Hesperides were also daughters of Atlas. Their mother was Hesperus, a personification of the region of the West. Their home was an island in the ocean, off the north or west coast of Africa. And here we find a tradition which not only points to Atlantis, but also shows some kinship to the legend in Genesis of the tree and the serpent. Titea, a goddess of the earth, gave Zeus a tree bearing golden apples on it. This tree was put in the care of the Hesperides, but they could not resist the temptation to pluck and eat its fruit. Thereupon a serpent named Laden was put to watch the tree. Hercules slew the serpent and gave the apples to the Hesperides. Heracles, Hercules, we have seen, was a son of Zeus, king of Atlantis. One of his twelve labors, the tenth, was the carrying off of the cattle of Gerion. The meaning of Gerion is the red glow of the sunset. He dwelt on the island of Erythea in the remote west beyond the pillars of Hercules. Hercules took a ship, and after encountering a storm, reached the island and placed himself on Mount Abbas. Hercules killed Gerion, stole the cattle, put them on the ship and landed them safely, driving them through Iberia, Gaul, and over the Alps down into Italy. Murray's Mythology, page 257. This was simply the memory of a cattle raid made by an uncivilized race upon the civilized cattle-raising people of Atlantis. It is not necessary to pursue the study of the gods of Greece any farther. They were simply barbarian recollections of the rulers of a great civilized people, who in the early days visited their shores and brought with them the arts of peace. Here, then, in conclusion, are the proofs of our proposition that the gods of Greece had been the kings of Atlantis. 1. They were not the makers, but the rulers of the world. 2. They were human in their attributes. They loved, sinned, and fought battles, the very sites of which are given. They founded cities and civilized the people of the shores of the Mediterranean. 3. They dwelt upon an island in the Atlantic, in the remote west, where the sun shines after it has ceased to shine on Greece. 4. Their land was destroyed in a deluge. 5. They were ruled over by Poseidon and Atlas. 6. Their empire extended to Egypt and Italy and the shores of Africa, precisely as stated by Plato. 7. They existed during the Bronze Age and at the beginning of the Iron Age. The entire Greek mythology is the recollection, by a degenerate race, of a vast, mighty, and highly civilized empire, which in a remote past covered large parts of Europe, Asia, Africa, and America. End of chapter 2 of part 4